I know that this comes as absolutely no surprise to anybody in the building, but today is the last Lord's Day of 2019. And it has been an excellent year of spiritual growth for a lot of folks and therefore for the congregation as a whole. Last January, a good number of the men had the opportunity and partook of that opportunity to go to the Momentum Men's Conference in Oklahoma City. And again, I know it was announced, but I just want to say once again, January 18th, that's coming up again this year. You know, we talk a lot about our young people and all of that, and again, it is a great opportunity not only for men to go, but for dads to take their sons and go. You know, sometimes we take our kids and we go to ball practices and we support them at games and all of that. What better way? dads to support your young teenage men than to take them to a leadership conference to turn them into the leaders that the Lord's Church needs over the years to come. Speaking of this past year, we've had a couple of brothers who have presented their first and in some cases second and or third devotionals ever. That's exciting. Not only is that exciting, but in 2019, that happened in 2020, if you look at the list out here of the men that are down for Devos, we have a couple of names on that list in the first quarter that have never been on the list before. And I want to encourage all of our young men who are Christians to really seriously consider putting together a Devo. If you need help, uh, there's plenty of help available to do that. But what an exciting thing that is when our young men get up and present their Devo for the first time. In 2019, a number of us also had the opportunity and partook of it to attend Affirming the Faith. If you've never been to Affirming the Faith, you're missing out. Karen and I moved to Oklahoma in 2009, and in February of 2010, we went to our first Affirming the Faith. It's like Green Valley Bible Camp. Can't get along without it. We've been there every year for 10 years. I know this past year, a few folks went that had never gone before. They went for the first time and from everything I heard are planning to return to it. It is a great and spiritually uplifting time. And the thing is, is that when individuals grow in all of these ways and others that we are talking about, the congregation grows stronger, our faith grows stronger, our ability to encourage grows stronger. We are only as strong as a congregation as our weakest link. We are only as faithful as the ones who, who are, are, are not in involving their faith as much in, in some ways. And so we strengthen the entire church when we go to these things, and that's awesome. I want to stress to you, March 6th and 7th of 2020, we'll be affirming the faith. If you've never been, consider going. There is no cost. It's Friday night. Um, they start at 6 or 7. So there's time after work in a lot of cases to get there, but certainly all day Saturday, you could even drive down early, you don't have to stay overnight, but it is an awesome opportunity to grow as an individual and to strengthen the church. 2019 also saw a couple more of our young men who had never taught a Bible class, teach Bible class at Green Valley Bible Camp, and both of them did an outstanding job. If this congregation, every member of this congregation could have been there to watch those classes and to, to listen to those young men teach. They sounded like seasoned teachers. You would be very proud, very grateful, very encouraged by those two young men, as was I. 2019, one of our brothers stepped up, stepped forward, and taught his first sermon. 
from this pulpit. Well, that pulpit. <laughs> and he's so excited about it that he's come to me since then and said, I want to preach again. And I said, great. So in a couple of Sunday nights on January the 12th, you're going to hear that brother preach another lesson. On October 5th of 2019, 44 members of this congregation showed up to help with the door. 44! That's a full third of this congregation. When I talked to Matt Wallen at House to House, he said that of all the congregations who had reported, 44 was the second greatest number. And they had congregations of several hundred people that went door knocking. But of this congregation, the number 44 was the second largest number that he had heard of, even in the bigger congregations, and that's awesome. We are blessed this past year to begin a wonderful youth and service training program. I could go on for hours, but I won't. Fabulous for our young ladies to learn, as well as our young men, how to put devotionals together, lead singing, those sorts of things, lead prayer in a public setting, so that in their respective roles in the years to come in the church that they can be leaders. That is an awesome thing. If your child, grandchild is not involved, that is an awesome thing. But of course, most of all this past year, most of all, we had six, six priceless souls obey the gospel. Cody Stout on May 15th, Audra Koblenz on July 14th, Emily Bond and Kaylee Powell both on July the 28th, Ty Cowan on September the 8th, and Chancey Gann on the 10th of December. Brethren, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about, salvation. It's the whole reason Jesus came. It's the whole reason church exists. Speaking of souls being saved, this last year at about this time, we were talking about the biblical fact a year ago that you and I were saved to serve. Titus 2, 11 through 14. We were saved to, not just sit in the pews, but we were saved to do good work which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. We were talking about how we were, how we were saved to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19, 10, Mark 16, 15, and 16, and others. And so last year we took on this theme for the year, SOS 2019, Save One Soul. And the whole point was that we each went out and really, really, really focused in and legitimately tried and, and put forth more effort than we had before, each one of us, to save one soul. Not to save the whole world, but to save one soul, because that's where it starts. Now, obviously, we weren't all able to save one soul. Otherwise, we'd have about 250 in attendance this morning. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be awesome if we had to put chairs down the inside here so that we could all worship together? Wouldn't that be great? However, at the same time, I was very humbled because I know a number of you, younger folks, older folks, and people in between, I know that a lot of you, because we talked about it, you came and you talked to me about how you had reached out and really tried to focus in, and that's great. That is great, that's where it all starts, with an effort to spread seed rather than just go through our daily lives, and a number of you did that. A number of our young people brought friends to church last year. That's awesome. What's so wonderful about that and your outreach efforts and trying to do that is this. God's great 
commission that we share and have been given the privilege of sharing with him, as Kirk alluded to in the announcements, it almost stole my sermon, doesn't stop just because the calendar's day, just because the calendar turns. In other words, the, just because the calendar's days are numbered doesn't mean the days of our mission are numbered. It doesn't change on the last day of the year. Saving Souls has been the mission. Check this out. Saving Souls has been the primary mission of the church since before the church started. Did you know that? The primary mission of the church before the church was ever started was to save souls. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 7, as well as Acts 1-8, both before the church was established, but they were told, the disciples of Jesus, that the whole point of this was going to be to save souls. Always been the method, uh, the purpose of the church. And it will remain the primary and most important mission of Christ's church until he comes to take us home, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 24. And so as I considered the sermon for this morning, I wanted to answer the question, how do we keep, I know a lot of you have started talking and, and you started talking more to people and, and trying to look for opportunities to get the word out there and, and that's exactly way, what's got to be done. But how do we keep that evangelistic fervor going? How do we keep that momentum that we started in 2019 rolling forward into 2020? And I think the answer is this that we do not lose sight of how vital it is not only to the lost, but to our own souls as well, for us to keep on seeking, to keep on searching, to keep on sincerely trying to start Bible studies in order to save the lost from eternal hell. And in order to do that, want to use a new phrase for the new year. I've kind of decided to call it a 2020 vision. A vision for what we want to see in 2020. This new vision for 2020 is of a twofold nature. In 2020, we need to, number one, develop the vision to start seeing the lost through the eyes of God. Number one, to start seeing the lost, not through our eyes, and we're going to talk about this at length this morning, but to see the lost, to, to develop the vision to see clearly the lost through the eyes of God, number one. And number two, to also see as a direct result of that, that each one of us does everything we personally possibly can to then also see the lost into Christ, into his church, and on into eternity. If we do that, we'll have a very sizable number of new converts in 2020. This must be our personal as well as congregational 2020 vision. And some may say, well, you know, we, we see things the way God does. We see the lost the way God does. Do we? Do we really? Do we really see things the way God does? I don't think we do, and I'll tell you why I don't think we do. 
all the scripture I'm going to give you this morning as we go through it. You see, developing a godly vision of the lost begins with the knowledge, understanding, and full acceptance of the fact that God's very own people have often had a huge problem with blindness. Did you know that? God's very own people, some of those people that were closest to God, some of those people that were as close to God as they could get, they had a real problem with blindness, with not seeing as God sees, with not, with not understanding other people the way God understands other people. They were, in all intents and purposes, blind. They did not see through the eyes of God. And so we need to develop a 2020 vision, desperately need to work to develop that. Let me give you some examples of how God's people have not seen others through the eyes of God in many places. You may recall the story of where Samuel the prophet goes to anoint King David. Samuel goes to select one of Jesse's sons to replace King Saul in 1 Samuel 16. And we're going to be taking a lot of notes this morning, not so many turnings in the Bible. We'll turn to a few, but not all that many. You may remember in 1 Samuel 16, and in verse 6, as Samuel sees Eliab, the oldest of Jesse's sons, pass before him. He looks at Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He sees Eliab and he thinks, wow, this has got to be the guy that God's looking for. This has got to be the son of Jesse that God wants. But he wasn't. From verse 7 of 1 Samuel 16, it would seem that, that maybe, maybe, quite likely, Eliab had an imposing physical fi figure. That he had a, one of those physiques, perhaps, like some of those guys that walk into a room and everybody knows you don't mess with them. It would seem that Eliab had one of those. You'll recall that the first king, King Saul, King Saul was handsome, and he was a head taller than everyone else. In fact, it says in 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2, there was a man of Benjamin, a mighty man of power. He had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now, this is what their first king was. He was handsome. He was a good-looking dude. And he was a head taller. I mean, tall, dark, and handsome probably fit Saul pretty well. And so it's very easy as, as Samuel sees Eliab thinking, well, you know, the first king was, you know, tall and good-looking and impressive, and, and, and maybe that's what God wants. And so he thought, surely Eliab is the guy. Remember how God answered Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7? Do you remember what he said? The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. How good, how much good had it done them to have old, tall, dark, and handsome as their first king? Didn't work out so well, did it? Why? Because Saul's heart wasn't determined to follow God. Oh, he looked great, man. He made a good-looking king. He was a poster boy for kings. But 
He didn't have a heart that was willing to follow God. He might have looked good on paper, but God wanted somebody after his own heart. God sees the inside. And so you see that even the prophet Samuel did not see as the Lord sees. He did not see through God's eyes until that point. We'd see the same truth powerfully revealed that God sees people from a totally different perspective and through totally different eyes than we do in Proverbs 31. You ask people today, who is the most beautiful woman you've ever seen? Many of them will point to some airbrushed actress on a magazine cover. Some of them will point to somebody who's, you know, all their makeup and the lights are just right and they're dazzling on, you know, in a movie. Just the most beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Folks, that ain't the way God sees it. God doesn't see it that way. And we've got to stop seeing it that way. Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, Charm is deceitful, and beauty's passing. Physical looks are passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Does God see women different than men usually do? Yeah. Yeah, because God looks at the heart. As a matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verses 3 and 4, he told us that in God's eyes, a woman's beauty does not come from or consist of her outward appearance or adornment, but her beauty comes from this, 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, it comes from the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious, watch this, in the sight of God. God's eyesight, if we're going to see Anybody through God's eyes, we've got to learn to look at them differently than we typically do. And that's the whole point of developing a, a 2020 vision, a vision in 2020 of people as they are, where they are, and look at them differently than God does. Uh, look at them differently than we do. Look at them as God does. And if we truly develop that 2020 vision, seeing things the way God does and not as man does, and I mean this, I mean this from the heart. And we will come to realize, even in this specific context we've just talked about, some of the most beautiful women in this entire world are not sitting in Hollywood Hills palaces. They're sitting in Shoto Hills pews. When we learn to see things as God does it. And when our young ladies that are growing up come to understand fully that a woman's beauty comes from within, comes from her relationship with God, they'll spend more time in Bible study than worrying about what to wear. They'll spend more time pursuing the things of God than the things of this world. And when our young men realize that, realize that, that a woman's beauty comes from who she is for God on the inside, that will be their first concern when they are considering who they want to spend the rest of their life with. That's where real beauty is. But we've got to learn and teach even our younger people to see it. And of course, it works the other way too. Ladies, if, if the man is not walking in such a way that he's putting God first in everything, he's probably not going to be the leader you need to lead your, lead your family home to heaven. That's where a man's beauty comes from too. We need to learn to see things through the eyes of God. But you know, it's so tough. It's so hard. We're physical people. 
We have physical eyes. We notice physical things. It's so hard as physical human beings to develop such a spiritual vision of people. I want to show you how Jesus understood that. You recall what happened in Matthew chapter 11? First part of Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist sends two disciples to Jesus. And they're going there to question Jesus if he's really the one or not. And so, Jesus, knowing that we only notice the physical things and we don't look through the spiritual eyes of God, Jesus, knowing that, after these two disciples go back to John the Baptist, Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 11, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, what'd you go out into the wilderness to see? See, Jesus knows that they're just looking at the physical. They're looking at this guy that's, that's dressed funny and eats funny. Okay? He knows that they're looking at this guy who's a spectacle because he's different. They're looking at this guy through physical human eye, and Jesus understands it. He says, what'd you go out to the wilderness to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? Notice he asked twice, what did you go out to see? Come on, people, what are you looking at? What did you go to see? A reed shaken by the wind? I'm sorry. A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. He had asked these people three times in that text what they'd gone out to see. And at the end, he says, I'm going to tell you what you saw. I'm going to tell you what you should have saw. I'm going to tell you, if you were looking through the eyes of God, what you would have seen. You wouldn't have just seen some guy that dresses funny and eats locusts and wild honey. You wouldn't have just seen some fiery preacher. You would have seen a man among which all of humanity, there's not been one born greater than him. If you'd seen him with the eyes of God, but you didn't. You see, Jesus understands that we have a problem learning to look at things through the eyes of God. Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to Matthew 13. This epidemic blindness of the people of God, their, their complete inability, unless they really work at it, to catch a vision of people through the eyes of God is once again addressed in Matthew 13. Look with me in Matthew 13, beginning at verse 13. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. He said it's on them. They've closed their eyes. They're not trying to look at things through the eyes of God. They have purposely closed their own eyes. Their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. Brethren, I want us to understand that this verse is also true, not just in the immediate context he teaches it, but it's also true with our evangelistic efforts, as well as every other facet of our spirituality. We each need desperately to open our eyes 
to open our ears and to open our hearts in order to truly see the lost through the eyes of God because only then, only then, will we get so seriously involved in seeking to save them that we will finally be as successful as Jesus desires us to be. One of the biggest problems that God's people have always had when it comes to their blindness is how they look at other people, and particularly the lost. For example, turn to me to Luke 18. Jesus' disciples had this problem. Jesus' disciples today have this problem. The religious leaders of Jesus' day had this problem. Not looking at others through the eyes of God. Not seeing others as Jesus sees them. Jesus in Luke chapter 18 tells the parable of one of the religious leaders of his day who encountered a tax collector who had gone up to the temple to pray with him. And this is what it says in Luke chapter 18 beginning at verse 9. Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or, or even as this, this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. The tax collector standing far off, not so much ra as raised his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The question is, what did this religious leader, hello, this wasn't a non-religious guy. What did this religious leader see when he looked at the tax collector? Oh, man, i got to get as far from He smells bad. I can't st This guy, I'm, boy, I'm grateful I'm so much better than he is. This guy ain't even worth being in the temple. That's what Pharisee saw. Question. God in the flesh, through the eyes of God, what did he see? He saw a soul that was willing to humble himself. He saw a soul that he was willing to justify, that God himself was willing to justify when he looked at that person. You know what? Pharisee wasn't looking at this other man through the eyes of God, and we see this so often. What did the Pharisee named Simon see when a woman came into his house to anoint Je Jesus' feet in, in Luke, I'm sorry, Luke, yeah, Luke 7, 36 through 50? What did he see? I'll tell you what he saw. He saw a sinful woman that was so bad in his eyes that she wasn't even worthy of touching Jesus, verse 39 of Luke 7. That's what he saw. What did Jesus see? a woman of faith, and one therefore worthy of giving his peace, his forgiveness, and his salvation to, which he did, verses 44 through 50. You see the difference in sight? See the difference? What did the scribes and the Pharisees, 
see in the woman that they brought before Jesus in John 8, 1 through 11. I'll tell you what they saw. All they saw in her was a chance to trap him. That's all they saw. But what did Jesus see? As Jesus looked at that woman who'd been thrown down before him, caught in a very act of adultery, as Jesus looked at her through the eyes of God, God in the flesh, as he looked at this woman, what did he see? He saw a lost soul. He saw a lost and hurting soul. He saw a soul that desperately needed his love, his compassion, his forgiveness, and his further teaching so that she could repent and live a better and more godly life, John 8, 10, and 11. Listen, it's this lack of being able to develop, or it's this lack of seeing others through the eyes of God, and it's this unwillingness to develop this vision, this spiritual 2020 vision, and truly see people as God does, that caused... God to refer to the Pharisees as the blind leading the blind, Matthew 15, 14. He also referred to them as blind guides, blind fools, and blind Pharisees in Matthew 23, 16 through 26. Why? Because they refused to develop the vision to see the lost and desperate state of the lost all around them through the eyes of God. They refused to develop a spiritual 2020 vision of the lost and desperate all around them. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they weren't the only ones. This is the thing. We say, well, scribes and Pharisees, and we all know about that. It wasn't just them. It was Jesus' own disciples. They, too, had a real problem with developing this eyesight through the eyes of God. For example, despite their earlier instruction from Jesus in Matthew 18, 1 through 11. What did his disciples see when the people continued to bring their children to Jesus for a blessing in the next chapter in Matthew 19, 13? What did, what did he see? What did they see? They saw a bother. They saw a distraction that wasn't worth the time, wasn't worth Jesus even knowing about. They saw these kids as a bother and a distraction. Question? What did Jesus see when he saw those kids? What did he say? He saw an example to show adults what it takes to be trusting enough to enter the kingdom. That's what he saw. What did his disciples, his own disciples and the multitude see in Matthew 10, 46 through 52 when they're going up to Jerusalem and here's blind Bartimaeus. What did they see when they looked at blind Bartimaeus? I'll tell you what they saw. They saw a broken, worthless person, a person that was not worth anything except a warning to be quiet, a useless, worthless, broken person that was not worth the master's time and effort. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw somebody that was worth stopping that whole parade for on the way to Calvary to heal. That's what he saw. That's what he saw. He is on his way to the most incredible pinnacle of human history to die on the cross. All of the Old Testament look forward to it. Here we are getting ready to end 2019 and go into 2020 and we're looking back to the cross. We're doing this in remembrance of him. Everything that... that was going to happen in the universe from the creation until we're taken home. The, the pinnacle of it is the cross. And Jesus is on his way up to Jerusalem to be crucified. And this one man, 
tells him to have mercy, and Jesus stopped. Suppose his disciples needed an eye adjustment. Suppose they needed to see Bartimaeus through his eyes. I think that's probably one of the reasons that story's in there, so that the disciples today can learn to see blind Bartimaeus through the eyes of Jesus. His disciples' lack of spiritual perception didn't only happen about seeing the lost, but about seeing one another. Think about this, one of the most well-known texts in the entire New Testament. We all know it very well, and it's got to do with eyesight. It's got to do with people not seeing things as God does. In our reactions with one another amongst brethren, you know the passage. Matthew chapter 7, verses 2 through 5, where he's talking about judgment. And he says, take the log out of your own eye, then, then go so you'll be able to what? See clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye, even amongst disciples. They didn't see one another through the eyes of God. And here's the one for me that just makes me want to hit the ground on my knees. What on earth, get, if you don't get anything else from this sermon, get this. What on earth did Jesus see when he looked at the Roman soldiers that Friday morning? Think about it. These Roman soldiers who had almost scourged him to death, maybe some of them, as they're leading him out to Calvary, have still got his blood spattered on them where they whipped him so hard and beat him so hard. And they're, they're, they're traveling out there to crucify him. They were shortly going to drive spikes through his hands and his feet and then stick around till he died just to make sure he was dead. What did Jesus see as he surveyed them, the heckling crowd, and all the others through blood-drenched eyes? What did Jesus see when he saw the soldiers and the mob which hated him, spit on him, crucified him, scourged him, reviled him, and was crying out for his slow torture and execution and would would settle for absolutely nothing less. What did Jesus see? What would you have seen if it was you? I'll tell you what Jesus saw. As Jesus looked at those Roman soldiers and all those masses who were crying out for his blood, Jesus saw nothing but a crowd of lost, confused, hurting, and headed for hell people. Jesus saw lost souls worth praying for, Luke 23, 34, instead of paying back, Matthew 26, 53. Sometimes when people hurt us, we just get, have this, I want to get back at them, I want to get, Jesus, Jesus didn't see people. He saw those Roman soldiers as needing his prayer. What, what did he pray as he's going out there? Father, please forgive them. They know not what they're doing. When Jesus looked at those soldiers, he saw people who were worth praying for. That's what he saw. When they spit on him, 
He saw people that were worth praying for, again, Luke 23, 34, instead of paying back, Matthew 26, 53. He saw lost souls worth dying to forgive, Acts 2, 22 through 37, instead of living to avenge, 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24. As Jesus looked at those people, he saw lost souls worth doing whatever it took, Philippians 2, 1 through 16, to see that they did not die in their sins, John 8 and verse 24. That blows my mind. And it breaks my heart. And it makes me want to develop the vision to see people through the eyes of God. Real quickly, there are three other areas of outward appearance that I want to talk about that we will learn not to accept as real once we develop a true 2020 spiritual vision and to see things through the eyes of God. I'm just going to give you a quick list of three and then we'll close. The first one, the first area of outward appearance that we will learn not to accept as real once we truly learn to see through the eyes of God is this. People who are not saved, forgiven, and truly and biblically born-again New Testament Christians are not a happy, contented, joyful, and peace-filled people, no matter what they may appear to be on the surface to the untrained human eye. Did you get that? People who are not Christians sometimes look so happy. They look so contented. But I'll tell you what, they're not. We look at the outward appearance and we say, wow, that person's got all they are so happy. But when we learn to look at lost people through the eyes of God, we will come to understand that they are not contented, joyful, and peace-filled people. Isaiah 59 describes those whose sins have separated them from God, and it shows that they are some of the most miserable people on the planet, and rightfully so. They may appear to be happy at times, but their happiness is a shallow, circumstantial, and short-lived happiness at best. Isaiah chapter 59, verses 1 through 15. Number two. The second area of outward appearance that we will learn is nothing more than, than an illusion or, or a, a bad mirage as we begin to really develop a true 2020 spiritual vision, as we, as we begin to really learn to pe see people through the eyes of God, is that those who do not know God but seem to have it made and can get away with anything do not have not, cannot, and will not. Sometimes it seems like, we sing songs about that, don't we? People, their lands and gold and all this, and it just seems like some people, they don't know God, they can just skate, and everything just falls in their lap, and everything's just, you know, all of this stuff. What we need to learn is those people do not, have not, cannot, and will not get away with anything. You want a scripture to go with that? Go home and read Psalm 73, and you'll come to understand. Psalm 73. Asaph thought they had it made until he saw their end, and he goes basically, oh no, what was I thinking? God forgive me that I thought they had it made. They don't, I do, because I'm with God. That's Psalm 73. Finally, third, and perhaps the most deceptive one to me, is how we view other good, moral, upright, religious people who are not members of the church. Sometimes 
We look at people who are not members of the church, who are good, moral people. They may not have any church at all. They're just, you know, good people. And sometimes we have this tendency to think that, well, you know, they're good people, so they'll be okay. I'm going to concentrate on, you know, the immoral and the drug addict and this one and that one. You, you know what? A person whose sins are not forgiven is a person whose sins are not forgiven. I don't care how good they are. You want biblical proof? Okay, here it is. What about Cornelius? In Acts chapter 10, verse 2, he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who gave alms generously to the people and prayed to God always, but he still wasn't saved until the end of Acts chapter 10 where he's baptized for the forgiveness of the sins he did have. Now maybe he had a lot fewer sins than some, but he still had sin, right? And that sin's got to be dealt with. It took the same sacrifice to save Cornelius, that is Jesus on the cross, and acceptance of the blood in the waters of Christian baptism, it took the same gift to justify him before God as it did Saul of Tarsus, didn't it? What did Saul say he was, the worst of sinners? Same blood for the worst of sinners is for Cornelius. I don't care how good somebody is. If they've got one sin on their record, that sin's got to be expunged or they can't go to heaven. And sometimes we look at good people and think, well, they're all set. No, no, they're not. Don't, no, no, they're not. If they have a sin, it needs to be dealt with. If we truly continue to carry out, carry forth with the Great Commission, in this same vein, only strengthened, that we started in 2019, as we seek to share the Christ, and to seek and to save the lost, then we must develop, as I said, a new 2020 vision. A new vision for the year 2020, which will see the lost more clearly, and therefore seek the lost even more consistently, precisely because of what they actually are, as we learn to see them through the eyes of God, they're helpless, wearied, scattered, like sheep having no shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd are wide open to the wolf, and we know that. When we see these people through the eyes of God, we will see them as lost, scattered, helpless, weary and heavy laden, and headed for a future that we don't even want to talk about in the church anymore. But we must, if we're going to mount an effective spiritual battle to save them in 2020. So the question this morning, do you have, in the sense of an optometrist, do you have a spiritual 2020 vision? Do you have that vision that sees people through the eyes of God? Because if you do, you can't help but tell them about Jesus. If you do not have that, what do you need to do to develop it? Loved what Kirk said during the announcements. I hope everybody will make it a point, if they've never done that before, to be here for every service. How do you develop a 2020 vision spiritually? You get help from God every opportunity you possibly can. And then you use it at every possibility and every opportunity he gives you to do so. Maybe you haven't started yet. Seeing eye to eye with God begins by obeying the gospel of Christ. 
Maybe you've not started yet. Maybe you've never been baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, which God requires you do. But until you become one of his children, you don't develop the eyesight as clearly as you'd ought to, obviously, to see people as your father sees them. You need to become his child by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, because that's what the scripture says. And if there's somebody here this morning that needs more study on that, we'd be glad to sit down and study with you. So I ask you this morning as we move into 2020, what would happen if you didn't see 2020? If you died today, where would you spend eternity? Do you have 2020 vision spiritually? Let's learn to see this as well as the lost around us through the eyes of God. And this morning, if you need to do anything, if you cannot answer that question with surety and with black and white book, chapter, and verse, then you need to rethink what you think. This morning, if you have a need to be baptized into Christ for prayers that in 2020 you'll do far better with the gospel, that you'll develop the vision you need, that you'll be here every service to learn, to see people as God does in their eternity, to do more to reach out. If you need prayers, if you need anything at all, we can help you with this morning to develop more of a spiritual 2020 vision. Please come to the front as we stand and